Hi, my name's Steve Coogan, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar. Imagine that. Imagine. Rather than enduring the oppressive rules of time and space, we could wrinkle it. 91 billion light years traveled. So this is where I'm supposed to make the joke about how long the Oscar ceremony was? You missed a good speech by Francis McDormand. No, I didn't miss it, Josh. I wrinkled it on YouTube. (laughs) I think you mean you tessered it. Okay. (laughs) Chris Pine there in the new A Wrinkle in Time, director Ava DuVernay's adaptation of the classic children's book, We've Got a Review. Plus, round two of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 1990s edition. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Josh, we started with 64 movies, and just like that, we're down to 32. On this week's show, we will share the first round results of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 90s and give you those second round matchups for you to vote in. Josh, how's your bracket looking so far? Uh, you're going to have to tell me. I, I don't have <laughs> access to you're the You're in super last range. place again. I, I did <laughs> share, I I shared the files with you. Oh, I, oh, I can get. Yeah. Oh, all right. I I'll, shared the folder sorry, with my you. My bad. My bad. I am not. Dug into the folder yet. I do know like polls were open for three minutes and I did see your note on Slack about how I was already losing hugely. I think there were like like three votes in, (laughs) but you you had to point that out. Maybe more like 30. I couldn't resist. (laughs) We will get to your bracket and to everyone else's bracket for that matter here a bit later in the show. And we will have some brief thoughts from at least one of us on last weekend's Oscar winners. But first, she's a television veteran who directed a Best Picture nominee with 2014 Selma, as well as the recent activist documentary 13th. But is Ava DuVernay the best fit for the YA fantasy A Wrinkle in Time? Let's discuss. Your father has accomplished something extraordinary, also dangerous. He's trapped by a darkness spreading throughout the universe and the only one who can stop it is you be a warrior i'll try josh this is one of those cases where we just came from the movie we're about to discuss a wrinkle in time and the movie included one of those director statements At the beginning of the movie, there are so Mm -hmm. many different questions I could pose to you. And that's all I really have are questions at this point in lieu of a more elaborate setup. You gave me a great one. I think your tease poses something we could consider, which is whether or not DuVernay is a good fit. And if she's not, who would be a better fit for this material, which is based on the classic children's book, not read by me, not ever assigned to me in school. Was it one that you are familiar with, Josh? Yeah, I read it as a kid and then reread it to my kids. So probably, I don't know, six years ago now is mm. the last time I looked at it. DuVernay suggested that everyone watching, she hoped that we would embrace our inner child, which me, the cynical. Which, which was the point you threw yeah. down your popcorn. Cynical critic. Out. In the crowd, I was I was done with the movie. <laughs> Hadn't even started yet. I want to know if you were able to embrace your inner child. Watching young Meg Murray and her brother Charles Wallace search 
the universe for their father who disappeared four years earlier. He is played by Chris Pine. They are helped along the way by the Mrs. What's it? Reese Witherspoon, Mrs. Who, Mindy Kaling, and Mrs. Witch, none other than the Oprah Winfrey. So I want to know whether or not you embrace that inner child, but I also want to know if you subscribe to the theory that was at least put out there by some over the past several decades, which is that A Wrinkle in Time might just be one of those unfilmable Mm. novels. You can quickly Google Wrinkle in Time and unfilmable, and it comes up. There has only been one other previous adaptation that I'm aware of. It was a 2003 TV version, which, according to what I read, even the book's author, Madeline Langell, said wasn't good. So why do you think it is, based on now having seen this movie adaptation, having read the source material some years ago, why do you think that word unfilmable gets thrown out? Do you think it applies in this case? Well, first of all, we all know your inner child. It's been dead for years. I think had a bad run-in with uh, Margaret O'Brien's Tootie and Make Me in St. Louis. Maybe, maybe. so. That's Toy Story happened. 3, the ending of it brought it back momentarily, momentarily. and then that was like 10 years ago and it's And gone. then back in the incinerator. Yep. Uh, yeah, th- this... I understand this is a a bit of a struggle for you, this film, Adam, and I'm going to try to put it in context here that I I, I hope will help you. Okay. Okay. But but let me start with your question there. Uh, a Wrinkle in Time is a film, even though I, I read it to my kids, um, it's not one that was necessarily beloved by me. It always confused me. Mm. It always- Can't imagine. It was, <laughs> it, and, and here's where it comes to the question of, is it unfilmable? Because what Lengel describes is- enticing and mysterious and always right on the grip of your mental picture. So some fantasy authors, and this you could argue I think I probably should. She's more of a science fiction author in this case, but it's this weird mixing of the two. And now I'm going to get tons of emails telling me which one I should identify it as. But sometimes we get clear pictures in our mind of what's being described. Mm -hmm. And I think A Wrinkle in Time, and this, this isn't to say that it's written poorly. I think it's her manner of describing allows for so much mystery that there's nothing right in front of our eyes where we can say, okay, I can see that on the screen. And filmmakers run into the same issue. And Mm -hmm. we can talk about whether DuVernay ran into that problem here. I think overall, I think there are some visuals that do not work at all, but I think she pulls off most of them. I think there's some really magical moments here that do evoke that feeling I had when I read the book. So it's not a literal translation. I think she takes some liberties visually as well in some interesting ways, but really there's some good visuals here and I want to get back to those. Here's my sales pitch to you. A Wrinkle in Time, it is for kids. It's the annihilation for kids. Yeah. I'm watching this movie and having a very similar experience to Annihilation where I'm thinking, okay, this isn't all making sense together. We're going from one fantastic set piece to the other. I can piece together a few threads. Uh, I'm not given everything I need. I don't definitely don't have all the answers at the end of it. I see possible themes, and I, and I realize, oh my gosh, I'm back in annihilation. Mm-hmm. And it even it even gets creepy. I mean, this thing gets really creepy towards the end, as Charles Wallace, this little kid is taken over by this evil force. I wanted it to feel creepy. (laughs) Okay, well, let me me give you these here. Essentially, 
there's a journey to a place between sci-fi and fantasy. Annihilation is like that. There's sentient flowers in mm-hmm. this, Adam. There's a mm-hmm. 2001-ish oh, yeah. white room. There's a doppelganger even, yeah. a creepy doppelganger encounter. And all of this, I do think, is in service of what, having heard from many listeners now since our last show who have offered interpretation of Annihilation, is personal psychology, okay? You can maybe say this version of A Wrinkle in Time, DuVernay's version, written, of course, by Jennifer Lee and Jeff Stockwell, they did the screenplay, is about the emotional experience of being abandoned by a father Mm -hmm. here in a fantastic way, but it could easily be a stand-in for those kids who have had that experience in a mundane, everyday way. Or, and here's where Oprah comes in, this idea of Mm self-actualization, which I think is an annihilation too, and you'd definitely get strands of that here. So just, you know, if I gave Annihilation the benefit of the doubt for some of these things. Mostly. And I think it's and uh-huh. I think it's stronger in some of the visual areas. I hope, okay. Um, why not give A Wrinkle in Time the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, I would, I would love to, though I can't. You were great, though, Josh. I saw you actually getting younger. I saw you getting younger before my eyes. That's how much you embraced your inner (laughs) child watching A Wrinkle in Time. Man, everybody's heart is so in the right place with this movie that I don't even really want to say anything negative about the movie because so clearly it has this wonderful goal of not only bringing this material to life for the people who enjoy it, but being this outlet as well for people watching it, especially young kids, to see themselves and some of these outcast characters and realize that they're special and they're beautiful. And these are messages that we need. And I wonder if, in fact, again, having not read the original material, I wonder how much of that was actually there or maybe how much more subtle it was and how much this is a case where the screenwriters in DuVernay really wanted that message yeah, front my center. memory is that's been pushed onto this movie. It feels that way yeah. to me. And again, noble. It's absolutely noble, but it feels very, very heavy-handed. And for material that should be so emotional, and really for a movie that's about science and features two scientists at its core, really four scientists at its core, because the young kids are so brilliant as well, mm-hmm. and that is suggested. We see it come through just slightly in a few different scenes. But otherwise, even for a kid's movie, Josh, I felt like this is a movie that could have had a little bit of a stronger take on the science and pushed that a little bit more to the fore. But it really feels like DuVernay wanted so badly to get to those empowerment messages and also the emotional kick, the emotional thrust of it, that Scenes along the way and many moments along the way just do not get us there, unfortunately. And it is really funny that you bring up Annihilation because I wasn't thinking about Annihilation as I watched it, but I was thinking about you thinking about Annihilation. I did have a moment about 15 minutes into this movie recognizing some of those same similarities you touched on that. Man, if Josh sits here and tells me that he didn't think Annihilation completely cohered, but this thing all all is really glued together, I'm going to tell him he's crazy because I didn't feel that way about this film, unfortunately. And you nailed it. That's exactly really my only thought about this film, really, at the end of it, unfortunately, is that I imagine that on the page, my mind and my imagination could fill in the blanks that need to be filled in. Our mind can do the work for us. That's the magic of reading books. And when you get this type of material and you do have to visualize it, 
There are some wonderful visuals, and I'm excited to hear which ones stood out for you. But there are also a bunch of visuals that really add nothing to what's going on, that don't explain anything about the mystery of what's really happening. In fact, I would argue they obfuscate the mystery of what's really happening. And just the fact that we are seeing it, but it's not registering or really giving us that sense of awe, it didn't for me. I was disconnected the entire time from this film. Yeah, I was never disconnected from Annihilation, but you're exactly describing my experience with some of the visuals in that movie, too. So neither of these, for me, completely cohere. I'm not going to claim A Wrinkle in Time coheres, although the thematic ideas that you were talking about in terms of empowerment are obviously there Mm -hmm. and very, very heavy handed. But yeah, beyond that, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what all of this might add up to. Very good point about the science. One of the things I do remember about the book is there's this wonderful illustration. So time travel, basically, to to Tusser, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm remembering and understanding the movie correctly, there's this illustration of uh, a string and an ant on a string. And when the two ends are brought together, it kind of shows you how time has been elapsed. Mm -hmm. That works amazingly in the book. You see it in the background behind Chris Pine's head. There's a reference to it on a that's computer right. screen. That's what they're yeah, trying it's like to do. Like a PowerPoint evoke. or something. Yeah. yeah. They needed more it. of that. Right. Like that would have, you're right. That would have they been did. really good. That would have been very helpful and also establish them as scientists. That's not ever really believable either. That's kind of a critique I had of Annihilation, too, though, is that I didn't quite believe that exploratory group. But let me get to some of the visuals I where I did feel like, oh, I can see how the filmmakers read the book and came up with this. And it echoed with my experience of reading it. I think the sentient flowers are pretty cool. Yeah. I think that giant Oprah works. Mm. <laughs> she's She is <laughs> – she's like a – a Miyazaki creature come to life. And the costuming of these three is pretty delightful. I don't know about Oprah's performance. I don't think Mindy Kaling is given anything to do. Reese Witherspoon is having some fun with it. I thought she worked for me. But that image of this gigantic Oprah towering over the rest of them, I did like. There's that wonderful scene, and here is, uh, you wouldn't call it science, but they're in that weird white room, and Meg looks through these glasses she's been given Mm -hmm. and can see, and here's where the movie falls short, doesn't give us all the answers, but we can essentially see the blueprint of the space so she can see where she can step Step. and rises up in the air and it looks like she's floating, but we see she's, I think that's a cool sequence. I think that works. But then where, where does it go? And and the person she meets there, why is he there? And it, it, it doesn't give us any more information. It's just a boring room. But Adam, these are, in no th- these are all things you can say of annihilation of that lighthouse. Really, you can. We just go there because the screenplay no, but needs I, to I, take us there. Okay, but but I understand since the beginning of the movie that the lighthouse is at the core of this whole thing. Where that character is, why he's there, how we well, got there. I mean, they There's do just... say he's on that planet. I forget the name of it. So I know. Anyway, let me give you the most beautiful image of the film. And it happens when Meg is doing her final tesser. And it looks differently than before because she's different now. And it's this golden aura she's in. But what I really liked are the ribbons of light that you see that caress her. And kind of, they don't really carry her, but they wrap around her and pass her off from one to the other, that's something that does jump out at me as could only have come from A Wrinkle in Time, maybe, from the, from the book. And so hmm. I do think there are some instances where they manage to evoke that well. Others, the flying Reese Witherspoon leaf creature. Yeah. 
Eh, not good. No. Not good. And there is, I complain about the stormy weather CGI. We get stormy weather CGI. Mm-hmm. Not good. So it's definitely uneven in the visual department with some yeah. highlights. And I would love to agree with you about the visual idea behind that sequence, the final Tesser sequence. But all I'm thinking about, Josh, because I'm so not connected to what's going on otherwise, I'm thinking about where are the other characters in this space? How did they get to where they end up? All these things that the movie, I think, just wants us to completely forget about rather than actually establishing them and establishing any of the rules of this world whatsoever. I just think the movie decides it doesn't want to deal with that. So it's going to focus on some wonderful visuals and hope that's enough to get us through and hope that what it leads to, which are these emotional moments, they should be. But, man, I never felt it. And I'm a softie. I'm a guy who can start bawling at just about anything these days. And yet, despite all those moments that were made for it here, it never hit me that way. Did it Did it resonate with you on that level? You know what? worked for me were the performances in the moment of reunion that's supposed to be the big emotional moment. I agree we're not set up there necessarily by the mechanics of the story for that payoff, but man, is Pine really good. I know yeah, we've Pine's said this before, yep. and I should stop being surprised. This is maybe a little different than what we've seen him do, this fatherly type, but I think when he and Storm Reed as Meg have that moment together, they both sell it really well. Mm-hmm. I think Storm Reed is really strong in this movie, being able just to access the woundedness and the hurt and the mm-hmm. anger that... I guess I believe her motivation for going on this journey absolutely in wanting to not just the obvious fact of find her father, but to get the answer to why he left her. Yep. And and her performance, you feel that in every scene. I agree with you on that. I disagree with you a little bit on gigantic Oprah, only because in every scene where she's gigantic, I was keenly aware of feeling as if she was talking to no one all the time. Mm, It's better in the scenes where you can tell, even if they're in this fantasy world where maybe it's green screen and it's all artificial, at least she's standing opposite someone and looking at them. In every scene where she is gigantic and they cut to a close-up of her, there's something off about that performance that feels like she's talking to anyone else in the room who might have been doing the opposite line. There is that one moment where she looks down at one of them and she's like she's looking off just a degree. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll but give you that. There's just there's something artificial, I guess, just a little bit false for me about that performance. If you do see a wrinkle in time and think not only is it not unfilmable, it was quite good. We would love to hear from you. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net. It's time to bring out the dead, Adam. We have the casualties from the first round of Film Spotting Madness when we come back, as well as our round two matchups. Stay with us.
I was, I was a kid enamored uh, with movies. Uh, growing up in Mexico, I thought uh, this could never happen. It happens. And I want to tell you, everyone that is dreaming of a parable, of using genre fantasy to tell the stories about the things that are real in the world today, you can do it. This is a door. Kick it open and come in. Thank you very much. Guillermo del Toro accepting his Best Picture Oscar this past Sunday night for The Shape of Water. A little bit of a surprise, I think, perhaps, Josh. I don't know if you filled out any Oscar brackets this time, but if you look at those those big categories, actor, actress, picture director, and the adapted screenplay and original screenplay, I don't think we're surprised by any of the results, at least from the screenplay categories. Jordan Peele winning for Get Out, James Ivory winning for Call Me By Your Name, Allison Janney for I, Tanya, supporting actress and supporting actress Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards. Those seem like locks. Gary Oldman winning Best Actor and Frances McDormand winning Best Actress seemed like locks, but I probably would not have guessed Del Toro winning both Best Director and Best Picture with The Shape of Water. Were you surprised by that? And I understand you did, unlike me, actually watch the ceremony or at least some of it. Did you have any general reactions? Yeah, I did watch it. I didn't do any predicting or any ballot filling out. It was just kind of a low-key, just my family, didn't have a party, turn it on, watch it, enjoy it sort of thing. We had Mm -hmm. a really busy weekend, so it was the end of a long weekend, and it was good to just chill out in front of the TV. I enjoyed the show, and I really like The Shape of Water winning. I liked, you know, Get Out and Dunkirk better, but all three of those films were in my top 10 list, so I had a lot to root for here. What I like about The Shape of Water is, you know, the movie's all about the beauty of diversity, the fact that this amphibian man is a beautiful creature, and that was clearly a theme of the night, given the more diverse list of nominees that were already there, and some of the winners... Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph had a great riff on that theme when they came out to present, but also it was nicely, naturally incorporated into the ceremony and other parts. Lakeith Stanfield from Get Out, he reprised that role (laughs) briefly for a comedic bit at the start. So it felt like, you know, a little bit of a different vibe to the ceremony. And why, why do I keep watching these? I got to say, I'm a sucker for the montages. I will always be a sucker for the film clip montages. My uh, editor, my book editor, Helen Lee, made a comment on Twitter about how much she was enjoying them too. And it made me watch them even more closely. And I I realized there's a great bit with uh, Eddie Murphy at one point where it's just a double take that they get of his that comes at the exact moment of that montage, responding to something that came before. And, you know, at, at their best, these can really be little mini video essays. Mm-hmm. They aren't always, but I feel like they had some particularly good montages this year, and those are always a highlight for me as well. All right, next week here on Film Spotting, we do plan to have a Sacred Cow discussion of Miller's Crossing, and we will have our third round, the Sweet 16 of Film Spotting Madness. If you listened to last week's show, you know that we promised you, <laughs> reluctantly, a review of Red Sparrow, this week, and then we thought maybe we would get to a wrinkle in time after that. Obviously, we decided instead to do a wrinkle in time opening weekend. And rather than spend too much time talking about Red Sparrow, why not get to one of those movies that came up in our conversation around Madness last week? I think I said it, Josh, and I can't remember if you also felt the same way. I know Sam is in the same boat I am. We haven't seen Miller's Crossing since we were in college. So I've always revered it as a Coen Brothers movie. 
I revere them as filmmakers. I've always held it in high regard. But also when I do rank Coen Brothers films or I just talk about Coen Brothers films, I put it way below the movies that I've seen more recently, some of them multiple times, maybe even taught in a class or talked about in detail here on the show. Miller's Crossing for me almost feels like a blind spot at this point because it has been over 20 years. Actually, I was a senior. I think I was a senior in high school when I last saw Miller's Crossing. So Sam and I discussed it and thought, why not go ahead and follow through on one of those madness thoughts and use madness as an opportunity to force us to reckon with Miller's Crossing again. And my only concern is I currently have it ranked as my favorite Coen Brothers film, mm. so it has nowhere to go but down, and True. that would just really hurt me. Been years since I've seen it, too, so yeah. it should be fun. A little bit of a spoiler alert, Miller's Crossing, not going to make it out of the first round of Film Spotting Madness, which provides even more reason why we need to give it some love, hopefully. So is the fact that I named it as the champ on the my champ, prediction yeah. bracket, is that why I'm not That's doing That's why well? you're in trouble. Oh. More on Madness here in a moment. Also next week, we will have the third film in our sixth film, Vincent Minnelli Marathon, The Bad and the Beautiful, one of the films, actually the only film in this marathon I have seen before, the 1952 melodrama starring Lana Turner and Kirk Douglas. If you're already subscribed to the Film Spotting podcast, you'll find our reviews of the first two films of the marathon in your feed. This week, we talked about Meet Me in St. Louis starring Judy Garland, wonderful in the film. And last week, it was Minnelli's debut, 1943's Cabin in the Sky. Michael Phillips joined us for that conversation and did offer a great perspective on the movie and Minnelli in general. Really one of the best setups, I think, to a marathon we've had. If you didn't know much about Minnelli, and we really don't, I feel like you had the table set for the entire marathon just based on what Michael had to say. These marathon bonus episodes post to our podcast feed on Wednesdays. You can also listen at filmspotting.net and at our website, filmspotting.net slash marathons is where you can find the entire lineup as well as past marathon editions. Our Manelli Marathon is presented by Mubi, and algorithm has no business choosing your films, Adam. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem and then you've got one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film is hand-selected by experts. Plus, you can delve deeper into these movies with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's Notebook. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's mubi.com slash filmspotting. Teased it last week, Isle of Dogs, the new movie from... Josh's beloved Wes Anderson is opening in Chicago anyway on Wednesday, March 28th, that Monday night, March 26th at 7 p.m. There will be an advanced screening of that film and over at filmspotting.net slash events, you can enter to win free passes to see Isle of Dogs can before I it comes out. No, no. I don't want to wait till the 20th. Ineligible. You're ineligible, Josh. Sorry. Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Ethan from Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Just wanted to call... And make a quick clarification on the film spotting madness question. At one point, I believe it was a death match, um, that all other copies of the losing brackets would be destroyed and only the film spotting madness winner uh, would go on to be seen by future generations. At some point in the past, the question kind of morphed into if you only could see one movie, there are two movies playing at the theater, and you can only see one of them. Which one are you walking into? Which, for me, personally, is a fundamentally different question than 
all copies of losing films are destroyed. So just wanted to make sure that I understood uh, what the question actually was. And so maybe some other listeners would be, uh, would benefit from some clarification there as well. Thanks. Well, thank you, Ethan. I think what he's getting at, Josh, is what's really at stake with Film Spotting Madness. And he was concerned that maybe that question that was at least guiding me and Sam and supposedly guiding you and all of our listeners out there, the notion that whatever film loses is going to be gone forever. That's that's what we're dealing with yeah. here. That maybe morphed at some point into just deciding which movie you'd see if they were both playing. I probably did kind of accidentally use that as a little bit of reasoning to sway a certain pick last week. But no, don't get me wrong. These movies are gone forever. Yeah, if they I, lose, they're gone forever. I think maybe we've used that language, too, in certain poll questions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for here, it's much more severe. Now, I don't remember which listener it was who blew my mind on Twitter, but you probably saw that tweet where they said, wait a second, if these movies have come up in past Film Spotting Madness editions... Yeah, that was a good reverend, I think. Robert Lewis? Yeah. Shouldn't they be ineligible now because they've been wiped off the face of the earth? I mean, he just completely poked a hole in in this world that That, we've built and all the rules. They apparently are meaningless. That's a wrinkle in time, Adam. That's what he's done. Well, let's get to Film Spotting Madness. 64 of the best films of the 90s. And yes, we know that many of you think we left out some of your favorites. That's going to happen. Only one can reign supreme. You can find the full list of titles. There were actually 72 to start. We had some play-in titles over at filmspotting.net slash madness. And we're going to give you the first round results and those second round matchups. The bracket of 64 does break down, as you would expect, into four groups of 16 with each group having a top seed. So we start with the number four overall seed, the Silence of the Lambs region, Josh. It went up against a film we adore ever since watching it and discussing it as part of our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon, Abbas Kiristami's Close Up. Which we both voted for. Yeah, we did, actually. But as we'll see in a moment, we were definitely in the minority. Matthew in Brooklyn wrote, In close-up, we see a brilliant blending of fiction, nonfiction, and metafiction. It's an examination of why we watch film and why we make film, as well as how we construct identity and even the truth. Silence of the Lambs is a great film, but close-up is one of the best films ever made and probably the best film in this bracket. Whoa. He might not be wrong. Matthew doubling down. Here's Sean. I have a confession. I broke the rules. I voted in this poll even though I haven't seen Close Up. Please don't revoke my film spotting card or send Dr. Lecter to my house. At least not until I've had a chance to explain. I voted for Close Up. Hear me out. Silence of the Lambs is a great film, but I don't worry about it being overlooked by the voters or forgotten once it's gone. My God, I can't forget it no matter how hard I try, so burn every copy, incinerate it from existence, and it will never leave my mind. But Close Up is a blind spot I know I need to see. I loved Kiristami's certified copy, and I don't want to lose Close Up before (laughs) I get a chance to see it. If you are going to send Lecter to visit me, have him bring a copy of Close Up so we can watch it together. He would probably like it too, right? I think you could both have a nice Chianti and some fava beans, and you would enjoy Close Up. That is some brilliant reasoning. I mean, if you're going to break the rules, at least have... Some great reasoning behind it. Yeah, but this could throw the results off. If, if, if everyone follows that. This, <laughs> speaking of breaking the rules, you I don't even know if I should tell you this, but you're going to be appalled. O- over this weekend, we're sitting there waiting for the car to be done at the car wash, Debbie and I. She pulls out her phone. I mentioned something about Film Spotting Madness. She's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to vote. I uh-huh. said, did you vote? Yes. She said, no, I didn't. I said, all right, <laughs> vote. She is going willy-nilly. All these films she hasn't seen, she's picking. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Picking the one she has seen? She, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, breaking the rules left and right, uh-huh. Adam. I know. It probably happens. That sounds I like Debbie. stop her. She's a bit of a, a rule breaker. Well, most listeners, I'm going to say, did not break that rule and did not go with the blind spot reasoning because surely most film spotting listeners have seen Silence of the Lambs. More of them than close up, and the results bear that out. 86% to 14%. Close up is gone, Sean. I hope you managed to see it. Sorry, Sean. Before we posted the next round of titles. That brings us to our naked people matchup. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights versus Mike Lee's Naked. Here's Eric Hill in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Though David Thewlis's performance grinds up and spits out everything in its path, it's hard to vote for something as nihilistic as Naked. And yet we have Boogie Nights, arguably just as nihilistic, but somehow, I don't know, fun at the same time? For that contradiction alone, PTA gets my vote. Yeah, and PTA got most of the votes here, Josh. 90% as a matter of fact. So after this, we're going to go in order of the widest margin to the closest battles. And there were not a lot of close ones here, actually, in this first round anyway. I guess the selection committee did a decent job of seeding because most of these were pretty clear cut. I know this next one gave you fits, Josh. Harold Ramis, Groundhog Day versus Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Apparently it didn't give anyone else fits. All right, Luis Reynoso says, looking at this matchup in isolation, the choice for me is easy. Groundhog Day is one of my all-time favorite films. But I also have to admit that the one play-in-round result that actually made me curse in anguish was hearing that Ed Wood lost out to Edward Scissorhands. While I do like both films, I think Ed Wood is Tim Burton's masterpiece. Therefore, I admit to a certain level of glee in taking a rock to Josh's scissors and <laughs> casting this vote for Groundhog Day. Getting personal, Luis. Yeah. I don't care for it. <laughs> Groundhog Day, though, advancing 76% pretty easily over Edward Scissorhands with just 24% of the vote. Michael Mann's Heat went up against Oliver Stone's JFK, two three-hour-plus movies, or close enough anyway. Andrew Hertz wrote in Mann versus Stone, Twisted Psyche versus Twisted Psyche. I voted Stone for twisting back into the left, back into the left back into the left. See what you did there, Andrew. It didn't help. However, Heat won with 72% of the vote. The Coen Brothers, The Big Lebowski, one of four Coen Brothers films in Film Spotting Madness 90s edition versus Peter Weir's The Truman Show, which got Josh's vote. Did other people side with you, Josh? Not many of them. 70% went with The Big Lebowski, so it will move on. We heard from Chris Massa Minute, Massa in Pittsburgh. I have little doubt that The Big Lebowski will run away with this round, but for my money, Peter Weir's understated masterpiece is one of the best, most rewatchable films of the 90s. Yeah. I'm with you there, Chris. And I love The Truman Show as well, but alas, only 30%. Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused went up against Robert Altman's The Player. Chad Hill and Monticello, Arkansas wrote in, Now I feel like a jerk for catching up with the player just so I could cast a vote for Dazed and Confused instead because the player is so much better than I expected it to be. The Altman movies I've seen before didn't quite click with me, but the player really unlocked his style and sensibility. The movie is witty, smart, darkly funny, and Altman's craft fluidly transitioning between characters and conversations within the same shot is top-notch. On the other hand, Dazed and Confused is still Linklater's best and most important work and a top-five all-time favorite advantage Linklater. Well, hey, at least Chad did his homework. He did. Got to respect that. Dazed and Confused gets the win, 72% of the vote. Speaking of homework, I will take this opportunity to note something that Sam 
suggested over the weekend, and it's a great point. And actually, another listener emailed in asking if we would do this, and we definitely think it's a really good idea. Everybody had to rush to do their homework. They were cramming like it was a college final to fit in movies. Some people had 20 titles, 30 titles they felt like they needed to see in order to not cheat on their voting. Because Sam and I have already gotten a start on next year's Film Spotting Madness. (laughs) Of course you have. We've got the first 32 or so films seated. We'll see if it changes in the next year, but we're getting a head start on it. What that means for our listeners, though, Josh, is that we're thinking we post the list of titles, say, January 1. So then everybody has two months to fill in their blind spots. And I will have more time to strategize my prediction bracket. (laughs) And lose again anyway. (laughs) James Cameron, his movie Terminator 2, Judgment Day, went up against The Lion King. Patrick Najjar from Athens, Georgia. Boy, you guys went straight for the throat right out of the gate. One of the greatest action movies of all time versus the peak of the Disney Renaissance. My gut is telling me that Cameron and his army of Terminators will be sending Simba and company to the elephant graveyard and roll on to the next round. Time to go listen to the circle of life and gently weep. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to there, Patrick, because Terminator 2 Judgment Day annihilated The Lion King 61% to 39%. Can I still go to the Broadway production you of can. The Lion King? You okay. can, actually. I feel Somehow little, that little is still now. around. <laughs> Malcolm X went up against Krzysztof Kieslowski's Blue. This is the one, I mentioned this on Twitter, but assuming that most of our listeners, or a good portion of them, actually did follow the quote-unquote rules and <laughs> decided not to vote in matchups where they hadn't seen both of the titles. This one, Malcolm X versus Blue, saw the lowest number of total votes. Now, a couple people did point out to me that actually the one they haven't seen is Malcolm X. But I'm guessing more people have seen that one over Blue. And in fact, I had never seen Blue up until we did it as part of a Kislovsky marathon here on the show. We need more deep dive analytics like that. We do. With each with each vote okay. here. I'll see what Pull I can do. like that. <laughs> w. David Lichty. In Indy, wrote, Malcolm X is one of two films I watched three times at the theater in one weekend. It makes all of what most consider to be the common mistakes of biopic genre, except all of it works and works wonderfully. It's informative, as all biopics should be. It's honest, as all history should be. And it's more cinematic than most movies even strive to be. For anyone who loves all that cinema can do, Malcolm X should be a desert island disc. And Josh, I love Blue, but I love Malcolm X more. I'm with the voters on this one. As was I. 59% of the vote did go to Malcolm X, so it can, for at least another week, be a Desert Island disc. All right, let's get to the next round of eight matchups. Well, that doesn't explain why you've come all the way out here. All the way out here to hell. I uh, have a job out in the town of Machine. Machine? That's the end of the line. Is it? Yes. The indelible Crispin Glover with Johnny Depp in Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Dead Man had the bad luck to go up against the number three overall seed. We are in 
the Fargo region, Josh. Rick Sellers in Seattle says, Fargo's great, but Dead Man is Jarmusch's best work. Robbie Mueller's stunning cinematography, Neil Young's haunting score, real Native Americans portrayed respectfully, poetry presented somehow without pretension, and Robert Mitchum in his final screen performance, It's Dead Man by a Mile. If for no other reason, we need to keep it around for future generations just to prove that Johnny Depp was once an actor. Wow, that's the most compelling case I've heard yet. (laughs) Ryan Hatch in Murray, Utah says, I just watched Dead Man as part of my madness homework and was blown away. How is this not constantly talked about with the rest of the great films from the 90s? I was literally thinking I might want it to win the whole thing. Then I come here and see it up against Fargo, you monsters, by Dead Man. Hey, at least Ryan got a chance to see it. Yeah. Before it's gone forever. 91%. Ooh. I should have had Fargo going a bit further in my uh, prediction bracket. Yeah, only 9% for Dead Man. That was the biggest margin of victory in the first round. And very likely, based on what's going to happen now as we get into even more difficult matchups, the whole tourney. Wes Anderson's Rushmore, Josh, going up against Adam Agoyan's The Sweet Hereafter. Yeah, I feel good about this. Let's first hear from Ryan Casto in St. Louis, Missouri. I groaned loudly when I heard that The Sweet Hereafter was up against the buzzsaw of an Anderson. Rushmore is fine. It's fine. Oh, Ryan. <laughs> well it's said, funny, Ryan. It's funny, it's quirky, it's likable. But come on, The Sweet Hereafter is earth-shatteringly brilliant. As much as I loved Manchester by the Sea for its nonlinear storytelling, its examination of the ramifications of grief, its understated but crushing performances— the Sweet Hereafter did it all and better 20 years earlier. Alas, congrats to all you Anderson fans out there for the first round win. Sad face emoji. And it is a first round win. Hey, I can't watch The Sweet Hereafter again, but I can read the Russell Banks book again, which is amazing. Rushmore wins 84% to 16%. Strong, strong. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino, his Reservoir Dogs, went up against John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, and we heard from David Lichty in Indianapolis again. Tarantino has better movies than Dogs, and Singleton doesn't have a better movie than Boys, but Dogs is still better than Boys, so I had to go with it. Okay, that sounds like more math, in a way. Yeah, I think I'm with them there. I can follow that. Yeah. And that's how voters went, 77% voted for Reservoir Dogs. Okay, Richard Linklater, he's back. His Dazed and Confused, already advanced, Will Before Sunrise, going up against a tough one in Michael Mann's The Insider. Jesse Rivers in Mobile, Alabama, says at first glance, I immediately assumed it would be easy to go for Before Sunrise, but I just couldn't click it. The more I thought about it, the more I felt like much of my love for this Linklater gem is due to my knowing what is to follow in the subsequent films. If I were to look at Sunrise strictly as a standalone piece, there is no way I could put it ahead of Michael Mann's best movie. Yes, it's better than Heat, Jesse says. Jesse, man going all out all over the place before sunrise i gotta say stands up completely on its own and deserved this win over the insider with 72 percent of the vote david fincher seven up against paul verhoven starship troopers some people are probably still bitter that starship troopers took down three kings in a play-in matchup aaron teachman in dc says i think i have to go with starship troopers here it's high camp and it's not quite as well realized as seven but it has a much more refined moral quality to it and a sharp actionable incisive point about propaganda and how to resist it what's in the box Tonight, it's my vote for Starship Troopers. Ooh, get a little massacre theater from you there. What's in the box? Nicely done. Seven takes the win with 76% of the vote. Okay. Whoa, Josh is going to hate this one. Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut up against Jane Campion's The Piano. Did anyone do homework and watch The Piano? That's that's all I want to know is that if The Piano got a little more attention out of this tournament, 
I'll be happy even though I know it's going to lose. Jason Egan yes. in L.A. My fear is that not enough people have seen the piano. There you see? go. We're of the same mind, Jason. It's stunningly good, and I would argue that its exploration of sexual slash marriage dynamics is every bit as dense and nuanced as Eyes Wide Shut, if not more so. No. But Kubrick will probably win just by strength of reputation. Too bad. Yeah, that's what's happened, I think. 67% of the oh, vote. Oh, man. Eyes, wide, eyes shut. wide Shut. A better film here. I agree with our listeners. I'm going to disagree with them, though. On this one, Curtis Hansen, his L.A. Confidential, up against James Foley's Glenn Gary. Glenn Ross, David Hoffman, and Queen says this was a tough one. Glenn Gary's simple visual style makes it feel more like a film stage play than a real movie. But man, that script, those performances. Has there ever been a more perfect cast? Glenn Gary is the one I really love and the one I will keep coming back to. And that's why I also voted for Glenn Gary, but there are not enough of us out there. You won't be coming back to it, David. It's, it's gone. gone. <laughs> L.A. Confidential gets 64% of the vote. But like I said last week, we've got it all memorized. All of us who love Glenn Gary know every line and every beat, and we don't we don't need it. Just We don't need your DVD. Just get together and leave the rest of us out of it and annoy each other. <laughs> I think we can do that. Our final matchup here of this bracket, the your dad's favorite movie versus your brother's favorite movie <laughs> matchup, Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption versus Brian Singer's the usual suspects. Andrew Hurt says, oh, come on. This is an elite eight or even possibly final four matchup. And you have it in the first round? This was heartbreaking, but it had to be Shawshank. And indeed it was. The Shawshank Redemption got 62% of the vote. One of the matchups, Josh, that you incorrectly guessed in your bracket. Just one? That's the only one I got wrong? I said one of oh. <laughs> the titles. <laughs> one of the matchups. For a minute there. You got wrong. No, you had you had more than that. We'll, we'll get to that more here in a little bit. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll also find out who amused listeners more, Joe Pesci and Goodfellas or the Fairley Brothers' There's Something About Mary. More madness ahead. Stay with us. His friends would say, stop whining. They've had enough of that. His friends would say, stop pining. There's other girls to look at. They've tried to set him up with Tiffany and Indigo. But there's something about Mary that they don't know. Mary. There's just something about Mary. Well, his friends say, look, life's no fairy tale. Uh, uh, what exactly are we, uh, looking at here? Um, what do you mean? What? <laughs> well, I mean, um, is it the, um, or the... Is it the Frank or the beans? Right. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. It looks like, I think it's a little bit of both. Break some veins! Break some veins! Shh. What's that bubble there? We get back into first-round film-spotting madness results with a clip from the Farrelly brothers. There's something about Mary. Mary is funny, but funny how, Josh? Especially when matched up against the number two overall seed, Goodfellas. Not funny enough. Scott in Libertyville, Illinois. This matchup is just wrong in so many ways. Each of these films could be considered the best of their respective genres. One being the best contemporary mafia movie, the other being the best comedy about or stalking? It's like comparing apples and oranges or franks and beans. It's just not fair, damn it. I abstain. I'll send my film spotting card back in just as soon as it arrives. <laughs> well, I actually thought it would be a wider margin than this. Goodfellas, 88%. 
There's something about Mary, only 12. Well, yeah, that is kind of a strong showing for There's Something Not About bad, Mary. Not bad, right? Not bad at all. Okay, the Wachowski sisters, they were brothers then. They are sisters now. They made The Matrix going up against one of your favorites in this tournament. And, oh, this one's going to depress you, too, The Blair Witch Project. Jesse Rivers in Mobile, Alabama. This is by far the most difficult choice of the first round for me. I saw both of these in the theater at 14, and they both had a profound effect on me. The Matrix showed me that philosophical questions could share the screen with extreme excitement and action. Blair Witch, with its ingenious use of limited resources, created the scariest movie ever made. Ever made. In film spotting tradition, this may be a bit of a cheat, to have it both ways, but I'm voting for the Blair Witch Project while knowing that the Matrix will win by a lot. Okay, whatever helps you sleep at night there, Jesse. And you're right, the Matrix, 84%. Blair Witch, only 16 What about Paul Thomas Anderson, his Magnolia going up against the movie we both voted for? I voted against PTA. Talk about film spotting cards needing yeah. to be revoked. I still can't believe that. I actually voted for Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother, and we heard from Jason Eakin in L.A. again, respect the PTA. Magnolia all the way. See, we're in disagreement again. The next time I'm out in L.A., we're going to have some fights over this. I can feel it. Jason says, it's his greatest film. Whoa, slow down there, wait, Jason. Okay, wait. Then the greatest film of all time. Should Holy we just stop? How? Do we just, we don't, we don't give him more of a forum at this point? Intimate yet epic, bombastic and raw, yet vulnerable and tender. Frogs will fall, characters will sing, and in the end, you will know that no matter what pain haunts your life, you are not alone. Worth noting that All About My Mother is really good, too. Well, I don't know if we could take his opinion. I mean, it's not the greatest film of <laughs> all time. That claim. All About My Mother, Josh, only 21%. Up against Magnolia, 79 so a lot of love out there for... PTA's film, even if Jason is a little bit insane. Okay, that brings us to Clint Eastwood in his Unforgiven, a movie I adore, versus Whit Stillman's Metropolitan. Here's Claudia in Concord, California. As Charlie would say, ceasing to exist is failure. I mean, that's pretty definitive. Therefore, I can't let Metropolitan go down without a fight. It was the first Whit Stillman film I had the pleasure of seeing, and it stuck with me like acronyms of French phrases. Sorry, Clint, you'll always have more chances to win, but maybe this time we can all pitch in for the urban hot bourgeois. <laughs> Not enough people are pitching in. Only 14% for Metropolitan. Unforgiven advances with 86%. This was a tough one. Spike Jones being John Malkovich up against Mike Judge's office space. I recall a splitting. I went with Malkatraz. You went with office space. Jen from Chicago says Malkovich is delightfully weird and provocative, but office space captures the disillusionment and ennui of Gen X work life perfectly. G.A. Williams adds, damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Well, I can't argue with that. And J.C. says, a matchup pitting two ensemble members of Steppenwolf here in Chicago against each other, Gary Cole versus Malkovich. I love them both, but Malkovich takes it, and Josh Malkovich did take it. 59% of the vote, so 41% went to office space. Not, Not bad. bad at all. Pretty close. We get slightly closer with this one. Maybe a bit surprising to me, actually. Danny Boyle's train spotting up against Amy Heckerling's clueless Lauren Bycroft in Neptune, New Jersey says, as much as it pains me and the high school version of myself that had the Choose Life monologue poster on my wall all the way through college, I gotta go clueless. Sean in Murfreesboro, Tennessee says, do we get to keep the train spotting soundtrack? I'm gonna rule yes. I mean, it's nearly perfect. You know what? Never mind, I'm voting for train spotting. And train spotting does win it with 58% of the vote to clueless, getting 42, Josh. 
I like that showing, and I also like that ruling, that decision. That's going to help me down the road. We can keep the soundtrack. Yes. Okay. Okay. Two movies here I don't think that have very notable soundtracks. I could be wrong. Steve James, Hoop Dreams, the only documentary, sadly, in our 64 film bracket up against Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Aaron Martin in Louisville, Kentucky, says, I'm probably alone, but this is easily the most painful matchup for me. In one corner, we have Steve James' seminal documentary. In the other, Terrence Malick's beautiful and brutal look at the Pacific theater of World War II. How to pick from two wonderfully crafted movies from world-class filmmakers. Through a lot of overanalyzing, I came to the conclusion that The Thin Red Line is probably my favorite Malick, where I think The Interrupters is my favorite James documentary. So while I wish both could move on, I'm giving the edge to The Thin Red Line. Hmm. The Thin Red Line, his favorite Malick. Yeah, some people say that. Some people do say that. I know, I know. And I can think of at least four that I love so much more. And maybe there were a few more listeners out there like me because the Thin Red Line, in this case, only got 44% to Hoop Dreams 56. So a fairly close matchup. And it seems Aaron wasn't alone in finding a bit of pain having to pick just one of those two titles. How about the Look Into Your Heart matchup, the Coen Brothers, Miller's Crossing versus Steven Spielberg's? Jurassic Park. Let's hear from Sean in Murfreesboro again. I was happy that Jurassic Park beat out Titanic. However, Film Spotting Nation, I'm afraid we were so preoccupied with whether we could, we didn't stop to think if we should. <laughs> Miller's well Crossing should win this matchup. It's the better movie, but I'm afraid the dinosaurs may just swallow it whole. Well, I'm going to argue, even without seeing it again, that yes, it is the better movie <laughs> than is. Jurassic Park. I didn't even want it to beat Titanic to get here, and yet Jurassic Park pulling off one of the few technical upsets here in this first round of Film Spotting Madness. We did have Miller's Crossing rank slightly higher. It was seated slightly higher just based on doing the math, seeing how all the other various sites and magazines rated it, and just based on how much we, we being me and Sam, preferred it. We thought it deserved to be higher. We knew it was going to lose, though, so it's not really an upset, and indeed it did 62% to 38%. And now I hope every astute film spotting listener out there is thinking to themselves, how are Adam and Josh going to have a sacred cow review of Miller's Crossing next week when every copy has been incinerated? Um, The incineration happens after the champion is crowned? Good one. Okay. Yeah, I like it. I like that technicality quite a bit. That brings us to the final eight matchups. Hey, my snakeskin jacket. Thanks, baby. Did I ever tell you that this here jacket represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom? About 50,000 times. I got us a room at the Cape Fear. And guess what? Power Man's playing at the Hurricane. Hurricane. Stabbing and steer. See, here's how you know Film Spotting Madness was all worth it. Our producer, Sam, finally watched Wild at Heart. All because of Film Spotting Madness. Even though he knew it was going to get crushed by number one overall seed, Pulp Fiction, he did finally get to see Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage in that crazy, crazy David Lynch movie where they play lovers on the run who come up against a foe even more fearsome than Willem Dafoe's Bobby Peru. It is, in this case, the Quentin Tarantino masterpiece, Pulp Fiction. Here's Kevin White in Carroll Stream, Illinois. I'm voting for Wild at Heart because A, I feel compelled to root for the underdog. B, that movie is rad as heck. And C, voting for Wild at Heart represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. No, you can't do that. You can't (laughs) say that line without trying to sound at least somewhat like Nicolas Cage trying to sound like Elvis Presley. 
No Come way. on. No. Come on. This is you did Massacre, Massacre Theater. Theater this week. <laughs> I'm I'm deeply disappointed in you. How can you even read those words without channeling Nicolas Cage? I just I can't I can't tarnish that art. It is art. It really is. But Wild at Heart is gone at least. At least you have a few more weeks as Film Spotting Madness continues to see what I'm talking about if you haven't had the pleasure of Nicolas Cage's Elvis impression. But it lost only 13% to Pulp Fiction's 87%. David Fincher, his movie Fight Club, went up against Todd Haynes' Safe. Matthew in Brooklyn, Safe is a bold and chilling body horror thriller about a fundamental rot at the heart of Reagan-era affluence. It may not be 100% successful, but there's so much more there than there is in Fight Club. And I didn't even touch on Julianne Moore's performance. Safe gets my vote. Now, we couldn't have picked out a comment or two defending Fight Club in this case, but instead Sam pulled something that he mentioned to me that I thought was just too brilliant. It's from a user, a username, Brat Pitt on Letterboxd. Okay. That, that really cuts to the core, I think, of Fight Club and the experience of considering Fight Club. First watch, Fight Club is the best movie ever made. Second watch, Fight Club is a deep commentary on the dangers of consumerism. Third watch. Fight Club is a disgusting cesspool of toxic masculinity, and it's not as deep as its fanboys think it is. Fourth watch. Fight Club is a critique of toxic masculinity, and it's deeper than its fanboys think it is. Fifth watch. Fight Club is the best satirical gay rom-com ever made. Where are you at, Josh, on that wow. spectrum? Well, how many times have I seen Fight Club is the question. I, I think I've seen it three times, so I haven't quite gotten all the way there yet, apparently. Hmm. I can't wait to hear what Brat Pitt thinks on the sixth watch. Yeah, I mean, five is nothing, and he'll have that opportunity because Fight Club advances with 83% of the vote to Safe's 17. Pixar, their Toy Story, beat out Toy Story 2 to get here, had to go up against M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense, even though I I much defended Shyamalan's follow-up, Unbreakable, in our Hot Mike segment at the end of our last show. I had to go with Toy Story, Josh. You went there as well. Andrew Hertz in Magic City, Florida went the other way. This is a battle of my adult mind versus my childlike heart. My head wins, but it is a truly soul-crushing choice to make. I do this not looking at what M. Night did after this, but I will never forget how he made me feel when I left the theater after watching Sixth Mm. Sense. The Sixth Sense got 25% of the vote, not nearly enough. Toy Story, 75. Would you have guessed this would be as wide of a margin? That surprises me. I think I actually expected it to be wider. Really? Based on the love out there for Toy Story and Pixar in general. And I know a lot of people love The Sixth Sense too, but yeah, I actually thought this might have been more like 80 to 85 for Toy Story. Spielberg, his Schindler's List going up against Brad Bird and the Iron Giant. So another animated entry here, Josh. Toy Story did advance. Are we going to get another one in there? Ryan Casto in St. Louis. This was not tough, but it was awkward. I respect the hell out of the Iron Giant. It's beautiful and magical and just touches upon the wondrous aspects of youth and discovery and friendship and sacrifice. But Schindler's List, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, how do you argue with my goodness? Schindler's List winning 66% to the Iron Giant's 34. The Coen brothers in it with another one. Barton Fink going up against Luke Besson's Leon the professional and Lee Nicholas says this was easily my toughest choice of round one, which is interesting because it was one of my easiest by far. I'm pretty sure I went with Leon, but it's been two minutes and I'm already unsure. <laughs> so does that mean he forgot or he wa- he's rethinking his vote? I think he's in the shimmer. I think film spotting madness sent him into the shimmer and he can't. <laughs> it's going to be a handy anymore. answer for a lot of things. <laughs> it could be. How did it come out, Josh? Barton Fink did win. 
with 61% of the vote. Wow, this one was really hard for me. Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express versus Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho. Nick Michelle, my dark horse for this entire tournament is Chungking Express. In addition to being a massive influence to Tarantino's work, it is just such an energetic and creative film. An excellent soundtrack, innovative editing, and unconventional plotting all mean I'll be booking my ticket on the Express. And he can. Chunking Express won with 58% of the vote. Yeah, I think we both voted for Chunking, though I typically, in Film Spotting Madness, go with my heart over my head. This is one where I went with my head. I so love my own private Idaho for a variety of reasons, but it's very near and dear to me. Chunking Express is one I revere as a piece of art, and I think that's why I wanted to stick around, so I'm happy that it took it with 58. And that brings us to... The Josh Larson special, Quentin Tarantino's yeah. Jackie Brown up against Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke. At least it will make you feel a little bit better that it was close, right, Josh? Was it close? It was close. One of our closest ones. All right, let's first hear from Jessica in Somerville, Massachusetts. This one is so difficult. On the one hand, you have Tarantino's most subtle, emotional, most mature, question mark, work. Yes, Jessica. And on the other hand, you have a true masterpiece of animation, imagery, and storytelling. I voted Jackie, but I don't feel good about it. (laughs) J.S. Lewis, at times like this, I remember what my grandpa always told me as a kid. When in doubt, vote Miyazaki. (laughs) That's some grandpa. That's uh, helpful advice there. (laughs) Jackie Brown, though, takes it 57 43. Hey, that's a good showing. Are you okay with that? That's a good showing for Princess Mononoke. I mean, for the record, I voted for Jackie Brown. Yes, but I'm glad to see Princess Mononoke got that much support. I am too. Steven Soderbergh, out of sight, film spotting Pantheon entry out of sight, up against Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Jason in New York, if it's a question of which film I would rather survive the inferno of madness, it's out of sight. If I'm putting together a list of best films of all time, I'd favor Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Both films excel at execution rather than offering much in the way of deeper resonance or profundity. So I'd rather have out of sight slick comic Elmore Leonardness, which is fairly rare, than Saving Private Ryan's dirty, thrilling sentimentality, which are more easily found elsewhere. It's a points-above-replacement theory. Love it. We're getting analytics, advanced analytics here. Jason did make the right choice going with Out of Sight, but the majority of Film Spotting listeners did not. Oh, no. Another case, Josh, where it's an upset, but only technically. Saving Private Ryan rated, based on the seating, just slightly lower than Out of Sight, but... Sam and I had a feeling it was going to take down that Soderbergh masterpiece. And this was a tough one. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't one where I felt like Saving Private Ryan was going to run away with it. But when I was filling out my bracket, I really, really was unsure because I hoped that there were a lot of really smart listeners out there who have heard us over 13 years of doing this show talk about all the virtues of Out of Sight and how much we love it and would go with it instead of Saving Private Ryan. But it didn't happen that way. Yeah, and I guess we both thought as well that the Saving Private Ryan reputation had gone down a bit since it was first released, but mm-hmm. apparently not. Apparently people still hold it in high regard, high enough to give it 59% of the vote here. Yeah, out of sight is gone. And just real quick before we get to the Sweet 16, I guess it does make sense because I just touched on 13 years of doing the show to highlight the fact that as we are taping this, we are almost exactly... 13 years to the day. Oh, really? From when film spotting began. We're taping this on March 5th, and it was a Sunday, March 6th, 
when Sam and I sat down together for our very first podcast ever, not having any clue, obviously, that we would still be sitting here 13 years later, that the show would sometimes cross the two-hour mark as we envisioned that yeah. first show. I was going to say, we might, 20 minutes. we might get to the real anniversary here <laughs> yeah, yet tonight. The longer we stay. But yeah, it was 13 years ago when we recorded that first episode and put out the first episode. There was a time when there wasn't much production involved in the show. No movie clips, no editing needed. We just sat down and babbled for 20 to 30 minutes and posted it. Record, stop, post. <laughs> that was pretty much it. And oh, how times have changed. Thanks to all of our listeners who have managed to stick with us through all those 13 years and those who joined us along the way, and especially to those who joined us along the way and went back and started listening from the beginning. That just sounds like torture to me, but <laughs> God bless all of you. Let's get to our second round matchups. This is a chance to go to the Sweet 16 of Film Spotting Madness 90s edition. Josh, the number four seed, Silence of the Lambs, goes up against Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This is an easy one for me. What about you? Yeah, Terminator 2. Is that where you're going? No. Not a chance. See, here's a phenomenon. I find, like, once I've voted against a film, even if it was tough, it's easier to vote against it the next time around. Okay. So I've kind of, you know, I've come to terms with voting against Silence of the Lambs. Did I vote against Silence of the Lambs? What was it, it up was against before? up against... Close up, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So I've already voted against it. So this doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, but Terminator 2 isn't close up. Well, this is true. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not using that logic. It's not as good as. It's a as. better film than The Science of the Lambs. No. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, it's not. It's an action film on the level of The Matrix. Mm. Oh, what if that is that a possible matchup? Terminator 2 and the I Matrix? I don't know. We will have to get out the brackets, but I think Silence of the Lambs not only is actually more entertaining than T2, it's it's a better technical piece of filmmaking. I'll go with Jonathan mm. Demi over James Cameron. T technical piece of filmmaking? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Sound design, not, camera, everything. I'm not besmirching uh, Demi, but uh, Terminator 2 well, is pretty much an effects technical masterpiece. Now, I'm pretty confident that Film Spotting Nation is going to have my back on this one. How about you? Um, I don't know. I have to you look know? at my bracket. Why am I asking you? <laughs> you're, you're, you're the worst at predicting these. expecting me to know what my bracket says, <laughs> my prediction bracket. Okay, let's move on to one that kills me and one that makes me want to strangle. Who's the selection committee on this? Who do I get to blame for this? I mean, Not me. I, I have an easy one, Silence of the Lambs over T2, and then I have to pick. I have to pick between Michael Mann's Heat and Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. You do, and you should pick Dazed what? and Confused. And I'm not. Come on. I'm not. You are. It's killing me, but I'm not. You are. No, you I, should. I, I love Heat more. Oh, my goodness. I actually love Heat more than Dazed and Confused. Film not, Spotting Madness made me realize not that. Not correct. <laughs> That's where I'm voting. I can't wait to see the results of that one. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. We're going to split on this one. We're, we're two for two on splitting, and I think we're going to yeah. split on this one. PTA's yeah, Boogie Nights we probably are. versus Spike Lee's Malcolm X. You're going with Malcolm X. I'm not. Yeah, I'm going with I'm going PTA. Max, and I feel okay about that. Okay. Later PTA, things get a little tougher to do that with, but uh, here I can still vote against him. Okay, we're going to go four for four because I'm taking the big Lebowski. Over Groundhog yes, Day? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Absolutely. You're, Brothers you're a madman. You're a madman. <laughs> that's, that's how the listeners Day are going to vote too, Josh. All the way. Groundhog Day is gone. It will not be seeing its shadow. Or I'm, I'm, it will see its shadow. I don't know how it works. I'm hoping for, um, remember when Bill Murray was... <laughs> 
the sleeper, the yes. Cinderella in uh-huh. the uh, acting tournament. I'm hoping Groundhog Day can pull off something similar. Okay. Good luck with that. Here's where we're finally going to fall into line, I think. The number three overall seed, Fargo, going up against LA Confidential. Yeah, that's Fargo. It's Fargo. Okay, let's move on. This one's tough, but not that tough. Richard Linklater. See, he's still in it. I can vote against Days and Confused because Before Sunrise is still alive. You know, you're only bringing that up because you know you made the wrong choice. Probably. It should be Days and Confused. Probably. But Before Sunrise is facing off against Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh. (sighs) We'll have other Kubrick masterpieces if we lose Eyes Wide Shut. Before Sunrise... Is it my favorite Linklater? I don't know. Might be. I think I got to vote that way. I think I got to go before sunrise. That's where I'm voting. All right. Okay. Wes Anderson, his Rushmore. This is an easy one for you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is, right? What do we got? Versus the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, if this this is going to lose to the Shawshank Redemption. So this matchup is probably for me the one that's the toughest to predict because you would Rushmore think had a good showing. It had a decent showing and you would think that these very smart, <clears throat> pretentious film spotting listeners out there would definitely go with Wes Anderson over the movie that's on TNT all the time. And IMDB said was the number one film ever for at least some period of time. But I like Shawshank. I'm going with Rushmore. I do have it as my number two Wes Anderson film. It's close with Moonrise Kingdom, both behind the Royal Tenenbaums. I'm going to go with that one and we'll see how it plays out because I think Shawshank is going to give Rushmore a run for its money and how this one plays out could really determine, at least between the two of us, how we fare ultimately in our brackets. This matchup has Uh a lot riding on it. Ooh, so for personal and professional reasons, I need Rushmore to win. You do. Quentin Tarantino, his Reservoir Dogs is going up against David Fincher's Seven. Yeah, I think this is Reservoir Dogs. It's hard for me because I do love Fincher and I love Seven. Truly love Seven, but maybe nostalgia is giving the edge to Tarantino. We get to the number two overall seed. Goodfellas finally going to take down Jurassic Park. Doesn't stand a chance. You're confident to that, huh? Doesn't stand a chance against the juggernaut that is Goodfellas. You're probably right, yeah. And that would be the correct way for things to go. We agree there. Josh, why don't you do the honors? Well, PTA's Magnolia versus Spike Jones's Bean John Malkovich. This is not hard for you? It's really hard for me. Okay. It's really hard because, again, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, and I can't believe, despite the fact You're that gonna he's vote my favorite him filmmaker. He's right now my favorite filmmaker going. I'm voting against him twice. Why, Adam, I like Malkovich better. Why do, you, why do you think Magnolia is a terrible film? I don't, but I think I'm swayed by two things, Josh, and both are unfair. One is I haven't seen Magnolia since I saw it in the theater when it came out, okay. which... What? How many years ago was that? I was living in Iowa City at the time. That was 20 years ago, at least. <sighs> Magnolia, nine, we should, there, I think there it's should the be late a 90s. way to look this up. There should be. I think it was the late 90s. I haven't seen Magnolia in 20 years. 1999. There you go. It's been almost 20 years. And I do think about listening to PTA recently on a podcast. I think it was the Bill Simmons Ringer podcast where he said... Yeah, you know, it's probably the movie that didn't really turn out the way I wanted it to in terms of what Hmm. he hoped it would be or maybe he had a little bit too much rope and it got away from him. That's what he said about it. And maybe that's just lingering with me, perhaps. And I love his films, his other films so much more that it's just kind of far down on the list. And Malkovich does get the edge. Is that where you're going as well? 
I'm probably going being John Malkovich as well. Yeah, okay. I, I'm similar on uh, the way you described his description of Magnolia is really interesting because that was my experience of it the first time. So I do like it. I admire it for many things. But yeah, here, going with being John Malkovich. Okay. Clint Eastwood, his masterpiece. There I said it. Unforgiven up against Danny Boyle's breakthrough, Train Spotting. Yeah, two films I've revisited in the last probably two years, I would say, and definitely Unforgiven should move on here. Yeah, no question. The Wachowskis, The Matrix, up against Hoop Dreams. <sighs> I'm going to vote against The Matrix. Are you really? A second time. Yeah, I am. I'm going to go with Hoop Dreams. I just think it's the stronger, I don't know, testament in some way. It kills me because I've conducted career-spanning interviews Q&A's with Steve James. He's do, come. I, I you're think, not going to do any more of those. I think he's come to my class twice. You vote against Hoop Dreams. That's I'm, it. I'm voting against Hoop Dreams. You have severed the Matrix. that relationship. I have, apparently. I'm sorry, Steve. The number one overall seed. It's Pulp Fiction going against Saving Private Ryan. I mean, we didn't want that to beat out of sight, so no way we're voting for it against Pulp Fiction. That's right. Pulp okay. Fiction will move on in my bracket. It should. Toy Story versus... Another Spielberg film, Schindler's List. Man, Spielberg's going down twice, I think. I think so, too. He's I out. Mean, well, and Jurassic Park, too. Schindler's had a strong showing in the first round, but Toy Story. Nah, you got to go Toy Story Spielberg's here. Spielberg's done, I think. Fincher, Fight Club, up against the Coen brothers, Barton Fink. Which Fight Club? Which viewing of Fight Club <laughs> yeah, are we good, looking at good here? Good point. According to Brad Pitt. Um, Barton Fink. Me too. Okay. I good. love Barton Fink. And as much as I do have some respect for Fight Club, it's a movie I really need to revisit. I need one of those rewatches to decide where I stand. I don't need to see Barton Fink again to know that I love it. Our final matchup to determine the Sweet 16, Josh Wonkar Wise, Chunking Express versus Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Mm, so I did vote for Chunking Express in the first round, but I have to continue my support of Tarantino's best film. Jackie Brown gets the vote from me. Okay. I love Jackie Brown. I do. But I'm still going with my head you here. You are really? I'm going with my head. You're insane. And I think Juan Carwise Junkie Express should advance. Okay. We do have our Film Spotting Madness tournament that takes place among the four of us. Me, you, Sam, and Film Spotting Madness godfather, Mike Merrigan. And as I look at the brackets, yes. we have two perfect ones so far. Are you kidding me? No. Got all of them right. Got all of the first round matchups right. How did I pull that off? No, it wasn't you. Oh. It was not you. It was Mike Merrigan and yours truly. Oh, good gracious. Give me a <laughs> Called break. Called all Give me of those break. first round matchups. Perfect. I don't think that's happened in Film Spotting Madness before. Sam did a great job as well. He only missed one in the first round. He thought that the thin red line would beat hoop dreams and then that brings us to our last place bracket josh how have you done in film spotting madness before the last couple of years where we've really done this and paid attention um remind well, me i know that i've watched two adam sandler films as punishment yes so i'm assuming that means i didn't do well and there is another adam sandler movie coming yes, out is. right there is <laughs> so it's just setting up perfectly for you what? april April, I how think. Many, how many did I get wrong? Okay, well. Are you telling me I'm out of it already? No, you're not, actually. Okay. Because these second-round matchups, they increase in points, and there's some that really could sway how okay. these brackets finish. But the ones you got wrong, you went with your heart, 
and thought Out of Sight would beat Saving Private Ryan. It did not. You thought that The Iron Giant would beat Schindler's List, and it didn't. You thought that My Own Private Idaho would beat Chunking Express. Good guess. I still kind of think that. Yeah, it did not, though. I can I can show you the results again if you need to see them. No, that's all right. That's you all right. also picked Glengarry Glenn Ross to beat L.A. Confidential. Okay. And the Curtis Hansen movie advanced, and you thought the usual suspects would beat the Shawshank Redemption. Huh. So, five. Five okay. down so right. far. It's early. Round one. I'm not worried. No, it is. It is early. You you are very much still I, in I, it. I don't get a special badge like you do for getting them all right, but... No, maybe next year I can get one of those. Okay, we want to know what you think about all of this insanity. Vote for your Film Spotting Madness favorites. The voting is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Again, that's filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote now. Invite your friends. Polls go live every week on Friday around midnight. And they close the following Monday at 5 p.m. So you only have about four days to vote. Everybody seemed to listen this week. They're paying attention. They're dialed in. Thousands of votes in each poll. So we feel really good about these results, even the ones that went against the way we wanted them to go. And we look forward to more Madness Fun. That is our show. If you have any thoughts on this week's episode, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail. Our number is 312 312- Two six four zero seven four four at filmspotting.net you can find 12 years of reviews interviews and top fives in the show archives also we've got two other shows as part of the film spotting family of podcasts please check out the next picture show and film spotting svu you can find them both in apple podcasts or through your preferred podcast app out in wide release this weekend gringo starring david o yellow as a businessman who finds himself crossing the line from law-abiding citizen to wanted criminal Charlize theron and tandy newton also star along with joel edgerton the hurricane heist opens and strangers pray at night a family staying in a secluded mobile home park for the night are visited by three mass psychopaths i think i will skip that one a wrinkle in time is out josh we reviewed it earlier in the show sounds like you thought duvernay mostly pulled it off are you recommending a wrinkle in time yeah okay i'm equating it with annihilation i'm at the same place with both just stop no stop hey (laughs) i made i made my case there's no Mm. reason that you can't say the same things about annihilation you could for a wrinkle in time. Okay. I'll just I'll just point people to our discussion of that film <laughs> instead. Next week, Film Spotting Madness, the round two results. We will get to those Sweet 16 matchups, and we will do a sacred cow of a beloved 90s film that just got voted out of Film Spotting Madness in round one, the Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please do give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so we can find a few more listeners. Our music this week is by Shannon and the Clams, comes from the new album, Onion. More information is at ShannonandTheClams.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Mm. I, I seriously...
This is going to be 10 minutes. I hope you have a lot to say. That's We'll be lucky if we get to 10 minutes. It can just be 10 minutes. It will be. It will be. I always say, here's the thing. So we'll see what happens 10 minutes from now. I always say, or no, I have said a million times in the show's history, I've got nothing to say. This review is going to be really short. And then we talk for 25 minutes. This is true. But I literally have nothing to say about this movie. Let's see. Play that for hot mics. I don't even have a setup. So film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.